I had PCOS and all of the symptoms, including uncontrollable weight gain or what felt like uncontrollable weight gain, uh, for 16 years. I lost right around 200 pounds. My PCOS reversed and we found out we were having twins. Welcome to You Cured What? The podcast of reversing the irreversible. This is where you hear how real people are healing from conditions that most people think they're stuck with for life. I'm your host, Joe Kalb. If I had to give you some medical advice, I'd go to medical school and get a medical degree. Seriously, nothing in this podcast is medical advice, nor is it intended to substitute as such. Now, enjoy the You Cured What? conversation. My guest today was diagnosed with hormonal issues in her early childhood, and she was told that she would never be able to have children. Now, proudly the mother of two boys, she has even become a certified nutritionist who specializes in fertility, polycystic ovary syndrome, and reproductive health. Welcome to the You Cured What podcast, Carolina Cartier. How are you doing, Carolina? I'm good. I'm so glad to be here and really excited about your podcast. Oh, well, thank you, Carolina. And I'm really excited to have you on. This is a topic that I know impacts a lot of people, um, a lot of uh, young couples and a lot of young people um, in today's age. So I know you've had... um, You've had a lot of uh, experience in the fertility world, and uh, it all started with your own personal experience. Can you give a little background on uh, kind of where you're coming from and what your um, what your process was like uh, to get to where you are today? Sure. Well, if we if we go back to the very beginning of kind of when my health issues started, um, it started when I was really young. It was around three or five that I had my first uh, endocrine diagnosis. And at that time that was precocious puberty. And if you go and you look that up, it just means there's certain parts of puberty that are happening. Some are not, um, but it can lead to abnormal growth and different issues. And there isn't really a clear reason as to why that happens. Although now, given where I am and what I've learned, it's very possible that uh, your mother's health and her blood glucose while she's pregnant could be impacting, um, you know, that happening to the child. So uh, because if you're so young, how do you develop an endocrine disorder in just a few short years? Um, So I had that. And then I was being monitored pretty closely. And then when I was 13 years old, so around 10 years later, five to 10 years later, I was diagnosed with PCOS, so polycystic ovary syndrome. And I had the full diagnosis, and I can go through all the criteria later, but I had kind of what's called the frank or classic, like the most severe. You have all the symptoms. And I didn't really know what that means. I mean, you're 13, you don't really think about it too much, what that means. Um, But I was given the standard therapy, which is really just birth control pills and metformin, which is uh, like a a glucose lowering drug or an insulin sensitizing drug. And I was given that and said, you know, if you ever want to have kids, you can come back, but it, it really may not be possible. And that's the outlook has changed a bit as, you know, our medical knowledge has grown. 
And so I had PCOS pretty uncontrolled. I was very bad as a young teenager at taking medications. And by the way, those don't solve the issue. The only point of those medications is really to alleviate some of the symptoms. Uh, And so I was bad at taking those. And I had PCOS and all of the symptoms, including uncontrollable weight gain or what felt like uncontrollable weight gain uh, for 16 years. So we're talking a long time that I had this. And I had no period, right? I had classic PCOS. Um, There was no sign of ovulation. I had a couple ultrasounds throughout the years. And they said, yes, you have the ovarian morphology of polycystic ovaries, as they call it when they do the ultrasound. Um, But no signs of ovulation, no periods. My hormones were out of whack. Um, and I, I'm six feet tall and I topped out close. I was probably 380s, 390s um, in weight. So almost 400 pounds uh, at six feet tall. And uh, now, by the way, I am not that. Now I'm under 200. <laughs> oh, that's great. That's yeah. Great. Um, but my, my goal was not specifically weight loss. You know, I was really into healthy at every size and love your body. And this is just the way I am, right? I was convinced there wasn't a weight component of this. This is just my body. My mother was always heavy and that wasn't the issue. All I needed to do was like fix my hormones some way. Um, so what happened was that I went to a naturopathic doctor in my late 20s And for the first time, I had my insulin levels checked. Um, She did it on her own. That was part of her standard protocol. And no endocrinologist had ever tested my insulin levels, right? They always said, well, we should check your glucose. A lot of people probably have their A1C checked. That was always normal. But what we found out when we tested my insulin is that it was through the roof. And I had what's called hyperinsulinemia, which is actually very common and very underreported, very under-tested. Um, I, you know, I had an endocrine disorder for 16 years and never had it tested. Um, oh. And that, yeah. That's that, it's, it's unfortunate. I, I do wish it was part of the standard panel for looking at just overall metabolic health. There's a lot of things I wish were included. Now that I'm, I'm in nutrition, now that I, I a little more in the know, there's a lot of things I wish were included. But yeah, so this doctor said, you know, maybe we should look at reducing sugar in your diet. That's what this high level of insulin tells me. And she didn't, subscribe to any particular diet other than like we should reduce that and people should know at the time uh you know growing up I had eaten a pretty standard American fast food and pizza kind of kind of diet but then in my mid-20s I started following Weston A. Price which is a very clean form almost like paleo similar they have a lot of uh, similarities um, raw milk if you're going to have it and sprouted grains and and only you know unrefined sugars like molasses or honey or those kinds of things lots of dates um, I ate a lot of sweets that were sweetened with molasses honey and dates um, so there's really not a, a control to the amount of sugar that you're eating but it was a very clean diet I was you know buying local grass-fed meats and all those kinds of things um so that's the diet I was on and she said we should we could even test your ketones if you want and it was kind of this new like what does this mean and she didn't say a ketogenic diet but once I learned what a ketone was 
off I went, right? I started researching everything. And this was back in 2014, you guys. So it's been almost six years, um, just a few months shy of six years. And I started following uh, a ketogenic diet, uh, which I now call a carbohydrate controlled diet. So I can go into that later, but that's kind of my, my way of referring to anything that is um, really assessing and controlling for the amount of sugar or carbohydrate in your diet. So that was six years ago. I lost right around 200 pounds. My PCOS reversed, uh, you can say. Um, I started within four months. So this is a point I like to bring up. So I'm not against healthy at every size in any way. I fully support loving your body and focusing on health and not really focusing just on weight. Um, So I was definitely morbidly obese when I started low carb. Within four months, I was still morbidly obese, but I started cycling. Right. So I had changed. I lost some weight. That's true. But I was still morbidly obese. I model in four months and that's why it was fixed. Right. There was a lot more going on hormonally and internally um, just to, to all these different factors that are involved when you change your diet and you start transforming your health. And and so while we use weight as one marker, it's just one marker. Well, I want to touch on um, something you mentioned earlier, and I mean, that is, there are a couple things I want to ask, but I want to start with, uh, you mentioned um, kind of the criteria of what makes up uh, PCOS. Can you go into what some of, um, what some of those criteria are? Yeah. So there, if you use the Rotterdam criteria, which is the standard of care, if you go to your physician, and because it's a syndrome, there are a lot of different symptoms that you could have, but we have two criteria. So the Rotterdam criteria looks at three different things. And if you have two of the three, or all three, then you have PCOS of a certain phenotype. So depending on which ones you have. So the criteria are, are looking at if you have regular ovulation, or which then results in regular menses, menstrual cycle. So that's the one. The second one is looking at your androgen levels, which are, we think of as like the male hormone. So testosterone is the, the main one, maybe DHA. Um, and then also ovarian morphology, which is where you look at the ovary on an ultrasound to see if it is we say polycystic, but really it's kind of like polyfollicular. Um, it doesn't necessarily mean you have a cyst that's going to rupture. What it means is that you have a bunch of tiny little follicles in the ovary that aren't reaching the size where you would ovulate them. And so you end up with this look, they'll call it a string of pearls. They just see all these little pearls. Uh, I believe the official criteria says 12 or more of those follicles or cysts, although some of the new technology is saying that it's very normal for a a regular, now that we have better imaging, that maybe 15 or up to 20 could be normal and maybe you need more um, to meet the criteria of PCOS. So that's kind of being debated in the community. Uh, And if you have all three of those, then you have what's called frank or classic PCOS. And then if you have two of the three, there's there's three other names uh, for those. Importantly, what is completely missing and what is a big piece of, because uh, I'm getting a master's in nutrition, right? I graduate in uh, just a few weeks here and I have a master's thesis. And a big piece of my thesis is that 
missing from this criteria is anything to do with insulin or even just you know, glucose homeostasis, right? How are you managing your blood sugar? That is not included, not directly. Um, and what we see is that a very large portion, higher than the general community, of people with PCOS have that hyperinsulinemia or insulin resistance, where we see this elevated level of insulin because your pancreas is like screaming, get the sugar down, get the sugar down. And it, it, it is maybe, but it's having to scream to do it because all the different cells, either the signal's not getting through and right. And there's a bunch of different ways. We say it always binds, but maybe the message isn't happening. And so there's this disruption in how you manage your glucose. Now, the piece about whether or not you ovulate and then how that relates to the ovarian morphology is very tied. Well, and honestly, even the androgen piece, it's all very tied to insulin because we know that high levels of insulin, not only do they directly stimulate androgen production on some of the, like the, the cells of um, the ovum, the egg that you're making, but it can... Um, you know, produce androgen and also directly inhibit ovulation in some cases. And so, and some of that has to do with hormone feedbacks and sex hormone binding globulin, and it gets technical, but we have this information and yet it hasn't been added to the criteria. And sadly, what I see is that a lot of women aren't getting insulin tested, even though they have a diagnosis of PCOS. And I think that if they had that, that test result, then perhaps the physician or the registered dietitian, if they're working with one or someone could say, oh, let's address this piece and maybe everything else will fall in line. Oh, that's, yeah, that is um, a big testament to the ability of um, looking at insulin and what that can tell you. Um, and I guess just for the listeners, I'll get on our soapbox for a second and just say, you know, pretty much any disease, if you go out to Google and Google that disease name and Google insulin alongside it, it tends to be, it tends to correspond, you know, high insulin levels, um, as Carolina mentioned, hyperinsulinemia, insulin resistance, you know, those things tend to be associated with about every disease, but that isn't a really commonly known fact, nor is it a commonly tested um, level in, you know, in your body. When you go to the doctor, that's not necessarily one of the standard blood panels that you get. Um, so just if you're, if you're looking to uh, go down an interesting rabbit hole, uh, just, you know, any, any condition that you're interested in, search that and then search insulin next to it. And it might blow your mind. But um, speaking of, of, you know, blowing your mind, I, I heard you say this, and I, I heard it uh, previously, but I want to underscore it. that In your late 20s, um, you said for the first time you had a period. Is that right? That's true. That a naturally occurring menstrual cycle period that started in my late 20s. So uh, part of the reason that I was diagnosed with PCOS when I was 13 was because I had precocious puberty. I was growing really fast. They were monitoring my growth plates in my hands and feet. And that's a thing that's done if they're curious how much someone's going to grow. I am six feet tall and I reached six feet tall by age 12. All right. So I was growing extremely fast and this 
partially related, related to precocious puberty, likely. My father is six foot five. Maybe that's part of it. Who knows? But my growth plates closed and I finished growing, thankfully, um, when I was 12. And so they were saying, all right, any time now, she should start regular puberty. She should have a menstrual cycle. This is what should happen. Uh, and it didn't happen. And so a year later, they started checking, well, what's going on? Because they had thought early on, maybe I had a pituitary tumor or who knows, why is she growing so fast? What's going on? Uh, and I'm thankfully proportionate. I just grew fast, I guess. Um, but uh, yeah, so when I was 13, because I had stopped growing so much earlier and I still hadn't started my period, that's when they checked and they said, okay, we're going to diagnose her with PCOS. She meets the criteria. Um, I did have a few like enforced bleeds, they call them. So um, one of the things that they test to see if you're, if there's like a blockage or if, if there's anything wrong from the, the physiology perspective is they might give you hormones such as like birth control pills to see if you can have withdrawal bleeding. Um, and so I had a few of those as a test where they're like, is there, is there something we need to look at surgery wise? So I had a few of those and everything seemed to work if we forced a hormone withdrawal, but I didn't have anything on my own, you know, spontaneously. I wasn't ovulating. That wasn't happening. And so it wasn't until I was 29, it was four months into keto and I started for the first time. And I've been, you know, aside from pregnancy, I've been regular ever since. Wow, that's incredible, and you know, I, I hope for the listener that um, you know whatever situation you're in, that that can provide you with hope that you know you went well over a decade, you know, without without having that very natural process, without having your regular periods, and that is uh, that had to be very uh, deflating at times. I, I don't know how much. Um, I don't know what what was that like over the years, um, and did, were you trying? You mentioned a couple of uh, medications. You mentioned metformin. You mentioned uh, birth control pills. Were you trying anything else to, um, you know, to try to improve your PCOS and uh, to improve your chances of um, of fertility? No, that's the short answer, and I'll say. I'm like a lot of others where we just kind of ignore it, especially if you have an early diagnosis. If you're a teenager, you're like, great, I don't have a period. And you're not thinking about <laughs> the long-term repercussions of having very elevated estrogen and testosterone, which is you know common, especially in the classic version, um, to have elevated levels of those. And this, this kind of chronic imbalance of hormones can cause a lot of problems down the line. And I think a lot of us in general, you're probably going to hear people on, on, as your podcast grows and you have all these guests, a lot of people ignore their symptoms and we think, ah, it's just how it is and that's okay. And what I see all the time and myself included, you start thinking, huh, I might want to have some children. And I wasn't, uh, or no, I was married when I started keto, but when I started Weston A. Price, I wasn't yet married. And that was my thought. I'm going to clean up my eating and maybe then I'll be able to have children and it'll just fix itself. Um, 
which it did once I changed away, you know, looking at macronutrient composition. And so I completely ignored it. I was not good at taking medications. And again, if you're taking a birth control pill, so the, the reason that they give women birth control pills for PCOS is that we want to prevent that string of pearls, all those little follicles that are half developing and then not maturing, because those could form into a bigger cyst could, you know, worst case scenario could eventually rupture or cause problems or become precancerous or all those sorts of things. So the treatment uh, for that is to just prevent ovulation, prevent a follicle from maturing or prevent, you know, all these sorts of things that they do depending on the type of birth control. So they're giving you that, but it isn't fixing that you still have PCOS. And if anything, um, what happens is it may prevent you from having well, it will, it's preventing you from having that diagnostic criteria of the, the polycystic ovary on ultrasound. So they'll prevent that sometimes by giving birth control, which in a, there's a positive there, but then it also prevents that criteria. So you may or may not get diagnosed of that. So it's kind of like this feedback um, because so many young women are put on birth control pills um, just as kind of standard practice as a way of birth control. Uh, you know, and they might be in their early teens and they may have no idea that they actually had PCOS because they wouldn't develop that criteria because they've just been taking it as a form of birth control. Um, so, yeah, I didn't do anything else. I wasn't good at those medications. And it wasn't until, you know, my mid-20s that I said, oh, let me look at diet. Apparently what you eat matters, um, which seems so obvious to me now. But at the time, I didn't I didn't know that. Uh, and yeah, so I was working kind of a crazy job. I used to work in finance and I would work long hours and oftentimes they would just feed us food because they didn't want you to go. So uh, they didn't want you to leave the office. So they would always order in food and I just ate anything. And so I switched over and I did feel a little better. I think, I don't know if it really happened, probably eating cleaner, you know, eating cleaner grains and whatnot is still better than, not, you know, a sad diet, but it wasn't fixing really what needed to be addressed, which turns out to be my hyperinsulinemia. Okay. So you mentioned that, um, you know, your naturopathic doctor had kind of mentioned the word ketone and that, um, that kind of set you off down the path of, um, researching, uh, the ketogenic diet. So I'm curious, um, once you started doing that, how, how did your diet change? What are some of the foods that you really started to focus on? You know, some of our listeners may not be uh, familiar with the ketogenic diet. They might have heard of keto and passing or something, but um, they may not have uh, a great understanding of this. Um, what types of foods did you start to incorporate? What did you um, look to avoid? How did your diet change at that point? Yes. So, because I was already following kind of a clean diet, uh, or you could say it was a clean sad, that doesn't really work, no. So it was a Weston A. Price diet, <laughs> right? So clean grains, I mean, but it really was following kind of the, the American my plate as far as macronutrients goes, really high in carbohydrate, um, kind of moderate or low in protein, right? Uh, and then you're always aiming for low fat if you're following the American diet because they say fat's so bad. Um, but when you are following a ketogenic diet, now this has changed a lot over time. So going back to 2014, 
to have a nutritional ketosis style diet. It was low carb, high fat. And if you search LCHF for low carb, high fat, plenty of things come up, right? And that is how it always was traditionally. And the idea was that not only because yes, you end up losing weight on a ketogenic diet, most people, if that's their goal, but a lot of people use LCHF not to lose weight, but to fix other conditions. And you may hear of other people who had no weight to lose and they still follow low carb. They're lean and following low carb. So when I started, it was very clear that it should be low carbohydrate. We're looking at like 20 grams of carbohydrate per day, um, which for people, I think one slice of bread is around 20 grams of carbohydrate to give a reference for people. It's been so long since I've had bread. Uh, So that was a surprise. And you guys, I'm a regular person. When I started, I had no idea what a carbohydrate really was or how much was in a slice of bread. I'm like, so I have to cut up my slice of bread into this many pieces. That was my first thought when I, when I looked at it. Um, And then it's having adequate protein. Sometimes you'll see it called moderate protein, but really the idea is you need to have enough protein as a building block for your body to maintain your muscle mass. And then the idea was to have high fat. And the reason that you were having high dietary fat was to help as a, a fuel source for ketone production. And the idea is that you're switching from using sugar from carbohydrate as your fuel source to using ketones made from fatty acids as your fuel source. And we have the flexibility as humans to use both, um, sometimes in a single day, kind of ebbs and flows depending on what you eat. So the body has that ability. And I had really no idea what my macronutrients were before. I wasn't tracking anything. So when I started Um, it was very, there were not a lot of resources back in 2014. Um, I think dietdoctor.com was around a little bit. I think rule.me was around and maybe one or two Facebook groups. Now, if you were to search for support groups, I mean, there's hundreds, maybe a thousand, who knows? There's so many. And they all now have kind of developed their way (laughs) of how you practice low carb, how you practice keto. They might have approved foods and not approved foods and clean versus dirty versus lazy versus all these different versions, right? But when I started, none of that really existed. There were no keto bars. There were no keto shakes. There were no special programs. And so what did I do? I ate a piece of meat (laughs) with a low carbohydrate vegetable, which are things uh, like in the brassica family, like broccoli and cauliflower, and then also things like zucchini or cabbages or Brussels sprouts or things like that. So a piece of meat, a low carbohydrate vegetable, and then I would add lots of, I would cook things in butter. I would add hollandaise sauce, um, things like that, and salt it. And it's a really simple formula, right? Meat, vegetable, sauce. Easy. Um, That's how it was. Now as things and also, oh, the, the fatty coffee debate. Oh, this started as a bulletproof coffee thing, um, which now is called, that's like a trademarked version from the bulletproof diet in the book and Dave Asprey. But a lot of people liked doing that and making their version of, of a fatty coffee that may have MCT oil or butter. Some people make it with an egg, which seems weird, but it's so good. I, oh, I often blend my coffee with an egg. Um, you guys, it's delicious. You have to try it. Um, so, uh, now in the beginning, I 
made a lot of those. And you guys, I still lost weight. And my goal was not even losing weight. My goal was just to, I thought, again, I was like, I'm just going to fix my hormones, but I'm always going to be overweight. That's just who I am. That's just my body type, right? It's inherited. It's genetic. Um, I had all these reasons why I wasn't going to lose weight. So I had a lot of the, you know, fatty coffee things. And honestly, I'm glad. For me, it was a good transition. I don't think that I could have gone from the diet I was eating with lots of carbs, lots of sugar, and gone cold turkey to this, uh, I see these versions now that are so low calorie, uh, because they're trying, you know, it's all about the deficit, and then they're so low fat to be low, to be low calorie. And I see people are like, I'm struggling, I'm so hungry. And I'm like, well, yeah, you're hungry. You just dropped your calorie intake by, you know, 2000. And it doesn't matter if what you were eating before was too much. That's what you're used to, right? You're coming off these crazy blood sugar swings and hormones are regulating and insulin's all over the, you know, there's, to me, that's too much. Uh, And especially I find for women who are, just there's more going on hormonally for women. So I'm like, you know, I'm glad I kind of tapered into it with a really high fat approach that worked for me. And I don't think it's, you know, bad short term to use that as a tool. Over time, I was never intentionally cutting calories. I never intended like I'm going to force myself to lose weight. But what happened was that I felt, you know, I don't really need that fatty coffee. I feel so full. I'm really not hungry because before I was using it kind of like a meal. It's like, I really don't need that. So I stopped adding fats to my coffee because I didn't want it. And that's okay. I think being adaptable and and knowing what you need was something that's great. I learned, you know, you hear a lot of talk of intuitive eating. I had no intuition before. My intuition would have said, grab a Snickers, right? I had no idea what I needed. And so over time, I think that intuition did build. I started to know what what true hunger is. Um, hormones started regulating like ghrelin and leptin and insulin. And I, it gave me the chance to eat and live kind of as we're supposed to. And so over time, I think I did start having slightly less fat, but it wasn't, I'm going to force this body composition and this is going to happen. Uh, but it just did. And I also kept losing weight and my hormone profile was perfect and everything became regular. So, so I've, I've really kept that simple meal formula. If anyone goes on my Instagram, you'll see it. I, I assemble a meat with a vegetable and I eat simple and I don't have to follow really detailed recipes, which can make it harder and take more time and it can be confusing. If you love recipes, go for it. But for the average person, they seem overwhelmed by the thought of now cooking all their meals. But it's, you know, I made a lunch today and I pre-chopped the veggies and actually cooking it and assembling it took 15 minutes. So it doesn't have to be really difficult. Yeah, that's terrific. It seems like you really found a a template that um, worked very well. I think it makes it easy for others to understand too. You, um, and you said uh, a meat, a uh, vegetable, and a sauce. And, um, you know, that works very well. In, in your case, um, it worked very well. And, um, you know, you also, I like that you called out that as your body, it seems like as your body healed, um, your ability to distinguish true hunger kicked up and you can trust your own body a little bit more and trust 
Um, you know, maybe if your body is telling you that you need a little more fat, maybe you add a little butter to your coffee, but um, if it's not, then maybe you don't need it. So um, it's a really good, uh, really good progression that you went on. And um, it's, yeah, it's handy for people to be able to hear, um, yeah, hear the realistic um, approach that you take to it and the foods that you eat. And the fact that you came from a situation where, uh, like many of us, you know, we don't think about like, yeah, how many carbohydrates are in this food that I just ate? It's not a um, not a common thing to put a lot of thought towards. Um, so the fact that you were able to learn that and have a lot of success with it, um, you know, that's really terrific. Um, you know, as you as you went through this, um, what was the timeline like on uh, weight loss? Because you started out. Um, at nearly 400 pounds and, you know, you sit here today under 200 pounds. Um, what was the, the timeline like from when you started the ketogenic diet? Yes. So like, like most people, when you have a lot of weight to lose, I lost a lot pretty quickly in the first couple of months, but then it kind of averaged out. And I think the first year, was a little higher. I might have lost, I want to say close to 80 the first year, but it averaged out to 60 per year, which some people say that's too long, right? They'll say it's too slow. And I'm thinking, honestly, that was steady. It was controlled. Um, it was reasonable. I wasn't, and here's, you and I both know, if you lose 10 pounds every single week, you are going to gain back 15 pounds every week later. And that is what happens. And usually, I can't say always, but I kind of call that the white knuckling weight loss where you're just like, I'm so hungry. And you're just, you're just like, I just want to eat something else. And I didn't do that. I started out again my intention was not weight loss. That was a side effect of getting healthier. And when we look at weight as a symptom of this, of this underlying problem of hyperinsulinemia and other hormone dysregulation and everything that goes along with that, these wild blood sugar swings, um, when we look at it as a symptom of that, it's like, oh, we solved the, the problem and the symptom went away on its own. And, um, you know, I, I remember really clearly, I forgot to say this bit that, you know, before keto, I was always hungry. You guys remember this, right? Maybe some of you feel this now. Every two hours you're eating and you're trying to eat the smallest amount possible, but you are truly hungry. And if you don't eat, you start getting hangry. You're mad at everyone. And maybe you're feeling symptoms of hypoglycemia. Maybe you're getting shaky, a little bit sweaty. You're irritable, brain fog. You know, all the things that come along with low blood sugar, you're not imagining that. And I see these accusations sometimes from from some gurus or and just anybody who says, you know, I'm a nutrition expert. And they're like, you know, really, you're not hungry. You're just pretending and you need to just stop eating. And I'm going, you know, I didn't imagine those symptoms. Those were real. It's just what I was eating was causing the symptoms. And for someone who hasn't been there, it can be hard for them to understand, like, where you really feel hungry, even though you just ate. And so when I changed the macronutrient composition, and I know now the why it worked, was that by lowering carbohydrate, 
I didn't have these huge spikes in blood sugar, which means I didn't have what's called reactive hypoglycemia, where you have this big spike in insulin to deal with the spike in glucose because your body's trying to bring that down, but there's almost a bit of an overreaction and then your blood sugar goes low. And this is really common. And people get on this, you know, roller coaster of they eat something high sugar and then right after that it drops. There's the crash and then you feel horrible. And so you go up and down and up and down. And that was that was every day. And I had to think about all the, you know, food all the time. Now I don't really have to focus, even though it's weird. Like I've gone into nutrition and I think less about when I'm going to eat next and less about what I'm going to right now. It's just living. And it's so liberating to not feel trapped by, I have to have a snack and I have to have this and I have, you know, got to keep it going. Cause otherwise like I'm going to get really hungry and you don't want to be around me when I'm hungry. So there's no more of that. That is awesome. And, um, you know, I want to, I want to do just a quick summary of where we are to this point. And then I want to get back to, um, where we left off in your personal journey here. You know, so you started out early childhood, precocious puberty and, um, and then, you know, kind of hormonal issues, um, fast growth. You were six feet tall by, um, age 12. And, um, then, you know, at that point you were diagnosed with PCOS and, um, you know, just kind of not ideal health for, for a very long time. Um, and then into your uh, mid to late 20s, you still you know, had never even had a period. But then uh, four months into the ketogenic diet, you had been eating that way for four months, um, you had your first natural period. Um, so uh, what happened next in, in your health journey? Yes. So honestly, it just kept getting better um, as far as hormones go. And I was checking them. I also got DEXA scans, which if anyone's familiar, it checks your um, body composition. So how much fat you have, not only just the subcutaneous that's under your skin, but more importantly, the visceral fat that's around your organs. So I was tracking that, my muscle mass, my bone density, and I was able to see through these scans that the fat around my organs was disappearing and going down, which is a great marker of just general health. Um, I did not lose muscle mass, and I remember the tech being really impressed. It was at a sports medicine clinic, and and uh, the tech was like, you know, we get people in here all the time that are more like athletes, and they're trying to change their body fat from, you know, 12% to 10% or something, and here I am up at like, you know, 30-something percent, uh, and he's like, you know, we just never see anyone maintain their muscle. And that's one of the benefits and you can, you know, go down that rabbit hole if you, if anybody wants to, but you can start looking it up and how it's kind of a, a protein sparing on a ketogenic diet. It helps you, even when you're losing body fat, um, you don't necessarily lose muscle or you don't have to, it's easier to maintain your muscle. So I tracked all of that. My health kept improving. Um, and I had started, if you remember, it was late 2014 and I decided, you know, a year or two in, I want to go into nutrition. And so I started doing all of these science prerequisites because um, I had been worked in business prior. So now I had to do all of my chemistry and my biology and my physiology. And I started taking all these classes and I applied and was accepted to get a, a master's degree in nutrition um, after, you know, doing 
almost another bachelor's, <laughs> getting all my science prereqs again. And then shortly after being accepted, I found out that I was pregnant. Uh, and this was, you know, a dream come true, kind of bad timing, but, you know, a dream come true. <laughs> and uh, we go in for our, our, we went in for the first ultrasound at eight weeks and we found out we were having twins. <laughs> so if you recall, everyone, uh, I had been told around age 13 that it, it was likely I couldn't have children. And that was, you know, kind of the, the diagnosis at the time. Now, with assisted reproductive technology and medications, um, your chances of having a child with PCOS are much more improved, but there are risks and there are sadly times when, when these interventions are not successful. So you may spend a lot of time and money, invest your emotions, and then sadly not have the outcome that, that you're looking for. So for me to turn around classic PCOS for 16 years and then not only you know get my normal cycle back but be healthy enough and fertile enough and to have you know twins um, was just a shock and amazing right like we were so excited but very unprepared I really had no idea what parenthood was all about so I've learned a lot the last couple years trial by fire uh, and yeah now they're two and a half years old and I'm nearly done with the master's in nutrition so kind of that all happened around the same time and you know I've continued uh, I've had a few more DEXA scans everything still looks good low visceral fat there are tons of markers you can go get my insulin level I hadn't given the number but uh, my my original insulin that the naturopathic uh, doctor found was 70, and I have a picture of it. Now, people say, well, what does 70 mean? The recommended. So if you get a lab, uh, go to you know Quest Diagnostic or whatever lab your doctor uses, they'll say it should be below 20 usually. That's still pretty high. Most of the physicians I follow in the low-carb space are going to say they want it below 5. All right. So if we're saying optimal is five or less, and I was at 70, this was really high. And what this means is I have like a pretty amazing pancreas, you guys. Like this thing can pump out a lot of insulin, uh, which is good and bad, right? The idea is that if you need a lot of insulin, that would be a short-term thing. We're talking like, wow, you know, we're a hunter-gatherer and we, we come across a bunch of berries and now I can respond to that. Not, you know, a decade plus of, of you know, French fries. So um, it was extremely high and I haven't had it tested in a while, I'll be honest, but the last time I had it tested, it was down to seven. Wow. Okay. So not quite five, but pretty close. And this has been a little while because through pregnancy, um, your your insulin level will change. There's a small amount of intentional high, uh, insulin resistance that happens, um, but it's not. It shouldn't be enough to cause major problems. But that's just part of of what happens in pregnancy to kind of help you help with growth and help with fat storage for pregnancy. Um, so I haven't had it tested since after they were born. So I, I think I'm due for another one and I'm really curious, but I still get a lot of different markers tested. I track my own fasting glucose level, 
from time to time, I really want to get a continuous glucose monitor uh, for people who know that's like the latest new tech becoming available where you can see what's happening with your glucose all day, every day, uh, you know, for the time that you're wearing this device. And uh, you can really see how you respond to certain foods. Um, I want that because I like data and I'm a little bit of a nerd that way, not because I feel it's necessary for me. I feel good. I don't have an afternoon crash from some carby lunch. I have sustained energy. I can do all the things I want in life. I can keep up with my toddlers. Um, I don't have any nutrient deficiency, right? So everything's good. It's more that I want it because, but for someone who's new, this is kind of a new space. If someone's just starting out low carb, how interesting would it be for you to see like before you, before you transition, you know, what were, we call these postprandial excursions. So after you eat, how much does your blood sugar change? And so if you are someone who's currently eating not low carb, it'd be really interesting to see what your blood sugar is doing now versus when you make a, a shift and to see how much more controlled it is. We're looking for you know, it's normal for your, your blood sugar to rise, even if you just eat, you know, a vegetable and meat meal. But if we're seeing these huge spikes or huge excursions, then that's a sign that that's probably too much carbohydrate for you, whatever it is. Um, so whatever you're, what you're eating, um, if it's causing problems for you, then maybe you need something different. That makes a lot of sense. And yeah, that does seem like a really good way for people new to these ideas, um, if they, I know those uh, continuous glucose monitors are hard to get a hold of, but for those people who can um, get them, it can be a very informative thing to see, oh, when I eat this, you know, maybe when I eat an apple, my blood sugar does this compared to um, when I eat, you know, three eggs, it does this. Um, and I think people can can just learn a lot and they can probably uh, then start to learn, well, how do I feel, um, you know, after I notice a big excursion, like you said, if you see a big spike in the monitor, do you notice any differences in subjective feeling or not? Um, so, yeah, I think that's going to be a really powerful um, technology for people as as time goes by here. Um, you, know, you mentioned that um, you found out you were pregnant right as you were um, you were starting grad school, and you mentioned that you are um, you are nearly done with grad school now. Um, I know you're working on a thesis um, as part of that project. I'm curious, um, could you give us a little bit of background? I think it's uh, because you're studying nutrition and you're kind of focusing on something. Uh, similar to what we've been talking about. Can you give us some background on your thesis? Yes. So I, I always take a chance to talk about the thesis. And and I'll just start off with, you know, when I went into this grad program, I applied directly to the thesis track instead of doing the dietitian track. Because, and it's it's the same education. The difference is the dietitian track will do a year of internships and then take the exam to be a dietitian. I could still do that if I want to, but I wanted to focus on writing a thesis because my, my long-term hope is to go on to a PhD. Now, when I went into the program, I knew exactly what I wanted to study, and that's something related to fertility and PCOS and 
low carb or keto diets, uh, something along that realm. And I had a lot of preconceptions. You know, I had been going to conferences and listening to some podcasts, and I would hear, you know, these experts critique all of these studies. Well, here's what they did wrong, and here's what they did wrong, and here's what they should have done, and here's why this is bad. And so I was really critical. I was like, I'm going to do this the right way. And I have now learned that research is difficult. <laughs> like, really, I, I did not. I was pretty naive going into this. Uh, it's quite the eye opener. And you guys, I just did surveys because I didn't have a budget. I would like to go into nutritional intervention studies in a PhD program. That would be great. But in a, a master's program with no budget, I did some surveys. And it is hard. Just so so if you're ever thinking, wow, why didn't they do X, Y, Z? It's, it's great to find limitations and flaws in a study, but they weren't necessarily doing that on purpose or to be misleading. Sometimes you have limitations and working with people is difficult. So I've learned that. But so what I've, I've settled on, so here's the title, it's a mouthful, but it's Awareness and Perceptions of Carbohydrate Controlled Diets for the Management of PCOS. And I call it a benchmark study. And there's a couple things. What I what I did, so three surveys. I had one that was of clinicians, um, specifically registered dietitians, looking at what are they aware of in the literature when it comes to carbohydrate control or as it's referred to carbohydrate restriction most of the time in the literature. And what do they think of it? Do they think it's positive or not? And I have a whole literature review looking at what's out there. So I know what's out there and I want to know what's their perception without looking at a, my review. Um, so I, that was a uh, Survey number one. Number two was on my my implementers, I call them. So the carbohydrate-controlled implementers who had followed a low-carb diet and then any changes to their fertility. Did they have PCOS or not? Were they trying to get pregnant for how long? Did they become pregnant? Was that why they started? Was it an accident? You know, like all, all these kinds of things. So looking at just what happened, how much weight did they lose? And, and if you're in the space and you're on social media, we kind of know the answers, but it's good to have some numbers on averages. Like if I take this sample of people, what's the average time it takes to lose however many pounds, right? Uh, and so I have results from that. And then my third one was on uh, carbohydrate literacy, as I call it, of the general public. So remember, I was like, I don't know how many carbs are in a slice of bread. I just eat the sandwich, right? And put some potato chips on it. I don't really think about how many carbs are there. So um, I, I did a small video. It's like a four-minute YouTube video, very basic, that kind of walks you them through um, what type of sugar is in an apple, right? Is it a mixture of, is it just glucose? Is it just fructose? Is it both? What do those mean? What are the names of different sugars, right? Um, so I did a pre-survey that just asked 10 questions about basics of what is a carbohydrate kind of thing, four-minute video, and then a post-survey to see if I could improve their test score. And the reason for that, some people think, well, what, what does that matter? Well, I can tell you why, is that um, especially for registered dietitians, they are giving advice on all the time on what type of dietary pattern to follow and why. So very often they're meeting you in a physician's office or they've been, you know, you've been referred to them because you have a certain condition, right? Uh, and medically speaking, they, they call obesity a condition. So it could be for that, it could be for something else completely unrelated, and they're giving dietary advice. So let's say you go to them because you have PCOS. What advice do they know 
to give you. And if they aren't even aware that there's a whole body of literature that's actually interventional and they, you know, study biomarkers and blood tests and all these sorts of things that show some positive outcomes, if they don't know that that's even there, do they even have the opportunity to recommend that diet? Because they're thinking, no way am I going to do that. I'm not going to put someone on the butter and bacon diet, which is a perception that a lot of people have, uh, which doesn't have to be the case. Um, and one of the, my biggest outcomes, and I'll share this with you, I've been telling everyone because I'm really excited. So this seems small, but it isn't. It's big. Because <laughs> one of the things that I learned that was surprising, I, I thought from this survey, I was mostly going to talk about how great keto is at helping women become pregnant who couldn't. And it does. My results are positive in that regard. However, the more surprising result was how many registered dietitians equate the term restriction so carbohydrate restriction with eating disorder tendencies. So in there, my, I received a lot of comments. I had some comment boxes and they're like, I do not put my clients on any sort of restrictive diet because it promotes an eating disorder. Now here, again, this is a perception, right? The idea that removing something from the diet automatically induces an eating disorder or is promoting what, that idea or that if you if weight changes in response to a change in diet that you're somehow not supporting healthy at every size or all these things that are kind of a, a presumption and again it matters because these are the people who are giving advice and it's not that they're trying to be uh, you know, difficult on purpose or, or anything along those lines, they're not aware of, the, of what's there. So I changed my phrase from carbohydrate restriction or low carb because it's not well defined what low carb is in the literature. It can range from 20 grams to 150 to even 200 grams could be called low carb. It depends however they define it. So I changed, uh, you know, carbohydrate restriction to carbohydrate controlled diets. Now, to me, this is a really big thing, and I'm hoping to kind of push this out there. And the reason is that when I started, keto was kind of the only way, and it had to be 20 grams carbs, and there was no lee leeway. It was kind of a little dogmatic, right? There wasn't, oh, you're more active, you need more, and maybe you do, maybe you don't. There's a lot of different views on this, but the point is that it, there are different views, and people are being successful um, on this spectrum of low carb or what I call carbohydrate controlled diets because someone could be eating 80 grams of carbohydrate, be extremely active. They may be in ketosis, maybe not, but that's still controlling for carbohydrate. They're also looking at the quality of their carbohydrate usually. Um, so there's... It's, that's what I'm calling it now. So carbohydrate controlled diets. And the reason for that is that it takes away this idea that paying attention to sugar or the quality of your carbohydrates is somehow restrictive or we're trying to induce, you know, deprivation or, you know, automatically a caloric deficit and we're just trying to force weight loss and all these kinds of things that are more of a negative connotation. They don't have to be negative. But that's how it is. So I could argue like, oh, you shouldn't, you shouldn't. Like, let's change it. It's positive. It's fine. And we kind of get into these, these 
justifications when we're talking to someone all the time this happened they're like well why are you restricting that you should just eat what makes you feel happy and live a little bit and all these things and now I'm like oh no I'm not restricting I'm I'm using a carbohydrate controlled diet for as a therapeutic tool Right. And that opens up this conversation to registered dietitians and to physicians saying, oh, we like therapeutic tools. Well, let's see how we can implement that. And now, again, we've opened it up to there's no hard dogmatic line of what you have to eat. Um, it gets a lot of criticism with fiber. And I'm not going to go down that road. But, you know, from a dietitian perspective, right, there's a certain amount of fiber you have to have. And if we're on carbohydrate control as a spectrum, it opens that up a little more to make personalizations and modifications and all those kinds of things. And it takes away a lot of that negative connotation uh, that we, that we hear. Well, that's really fascinating. And it, you know, it seems like um, it would be challenging for a lot of patients who might go into a doctor or to a registered dietitian and um, you know, the dietitians just aren't equipped um, with the right, the right phrasing, the right um, information to um, to really recommend these carbohydrate-controlled diets, because out of good intentions, they they don't want to promote what they see as an eating disorder, as restriction, exactly. um, because those things can be, um, you know, they can be very dangerous and they they can be unhelpful. Um, but right. I it's like the best that. of intentions, right? You know, and I'm with you and I see that. And I used to get angry before. I'm like, gosh, this medical community refusing to allow us to be healthy. And, and now having gone through the master's program, most of my classmates are continuing on with their internship to become a registered dietitian. And these are good people with the best of intentions. Um, of and so it's really changed my perspective, my awareness of what's, what's happening and the challenges we're facing um, for those who are kind of looking at policy and looking at ways to include more whole food diets that are lower carb relative to the nutritional guidelines. For those of us looking at that, it's finding a way to be more accepted. And that's how I landed on, on saying carbohydrate controlled diets. And what I find in the literature, you know, like I said, there's all these different definitions and what you end up with is this, it's called um, heterogeneity of outcomes, meaning very different outcomes. So one study on low carb will say, yeah, it was super positive for hormone health. And then another one says, no, it was negative or really it didn't do anything. And you end up with all these mixed responses. So in a literature review, they say, really, it all washes out, right? There's nothing really good or bad. And so part of my literature review was to look at how are they defining low carb? Because when you search that and you actually go into their methods and you look at what diet they're looking at, like I said, it ranged from extremely low carb, like 20, 20 grams or less, up to often 40% of the diet from carbohydrate. And I can say the ones that used 40% of the diet is carbohydrate, the, the dietary guidelines say 45 to 65%. So it's not a huge difference in carbohydrate intake. And those studies, not surprisingly, didn't find a big difference in health outcomes. But really, they're not making a, a difference in the diet that much. But they rarely ever include what the, the participants were eating before. So we really don't know 
was it a change or not? Often they have a washout, you know, period where they put them on a certain diet, but it's really hard to track that. So getting, you know, I did not expect a a lot of my thesis to be around definitions and phrasing and whatnot. Um, But if we want clinicians to look at insulin resistance and treating that or hyperinsulinemia and saying, okay, this is a marker I want to treat. I would say the consensus, I mean, for most, most part, if you're seeing insulin resistance or hyperinsulinemia, one of the fastest ways to address that and get it into a normal range is to reduce the amount of carbohydrate that that person's consuming. And study after study shows that works. You can argue if that's the best long-term, is there adherence to the diet? Um, Part of the problem in the literature um, is that not all of them go very long-term. So a long-term would be like two years. That's really what we want to see. But it is hard. It is expensive. Um, People have a lot of celebrations and eat kind of what they do, right? This is life. And so that's where nutritional research is really challenging. And so how does or how do all of these different confounders and problems in the research affect what a dietitian is going to do. And if they think, um, you know, all the time they'll reduce diets. I mean, how many, how many people have received recommendations to reduce sodium in their diet, right? That's sodium restriction, but we don't say, I've never heard someone say, oh, sodium restriction leads to disordered eating. Um, and right. yet we do hear that when we say, oh, let's do sugar restriction. Oh, that might lead to disordered eating. So rather than trying to justify and argue why that's not true, it's like, all right, let's just reframe this and say, we need a therapy for this problem. And it isn't just PCOS, but anything that's also on like the metabolic health spectrum, like you were saying at the beginning, if you look up a metabolic condition and you look up what the common thing going on with insulin is very often it's high levels of insulin and that's a compensatory mechanism, right? Your body responds to this chronic high intake of glucose. And some people will say it, I've heard some experts are more on the side of, uh, of your fat cells becoming full and there's no place to put fat, but regardless, the treatment or the therapeutic tool is very often the same, uh, which is to control for carbohydrate in the diet, which usually is reducing it. Uh, That's, um, yeah, that's an excellent summary. And I'm curious, um, you mentioned, you mentioned a positive outcome, but um, yeah, in your thesis, what was the um, outcome with, um, with women who had adopted lower carbohydrate diets and fertility? What, uh, were there any notable results there? Yes. So I don't have the exact numbers in front of me. Um, However, uh, I should be fairly familiar at this point, right? Having having worked on it for a year. Um, Yes. So I had around, of actual completed for that survey, I had around 200 respondents, participants, and not everyone started with the intention of becoming pregnant. That was not everyone's goal. So this is really interesting, you know, to just kind of see what are the different goals. Was weight loss a goal for some people like me? Weight loss wasn't on their mind. And that's, a again, another common thing. We're like, I'm just big boned. I'm just going to be overweight. Um, a side effect ends up being you're like, oh, I'm losing weight. I didn't expect that. But yes, so about half of my participants became pregnant 
um, they said over, and this is all self-reported, so that's a huge limitation of surveys, but so half of them did become pregnant. Um, for some of them, I think it was the original reason they started keto. And for some of them, it was not the original reason. And we have what we call, and I use this as my, my Instagram and my Facebook group, we have what we call keto babies. And you'll see that all the time. You're like, I wasn't expecting to get pregnant and surprise. Um, I became so healthy that I did because they're thinking I can't get pregnant or I'm not fertile or I've tried for so long. And um, yeah, so around half of them did become pregnant. And here was the kicker. Um, the average time to pregnancy was only, I think, three and a half months. I could be wrong. We'll see once, it, once it's all published. You guys check and see if I was wrong. Um, but I think it was around three and a half months of time to pregnancy which is much faster than average. So even for what we would call, you know, a healthy couple where we don't see any reasons that would prevent pregnancy and they are wanting to conceive, the average is close to a year for conception um, because a lot of things have to go right. And even if everything's at the right place at the right time and conception happens, sometimes implantation doesn't happen um, or there's a whole, a whole host of things. Right. So, um, it was a very quick kind of surprise uh, to see that result. And again, some, some of the participants were already having normal cycles and ovulating and some were not. So it's kind of mixed and I can see, look at these little subgroups um, and see what was happening there. So, but that's, you know, to me, it's not surprising, but I'm in that world, right? I see it every single day. I do have a Facebook group and I see, you know, people posting positive pregnancy tests every day. And usually it's like been trying for seven years or been trying for this long. And they're like, it finally got my positive. And it's, it's so exciting to see that you can restore your fertility. And I, and I say, you know, if someone like me who really kind of had the worst case outlook and had it for 16 years. If I can turn it around, um, then I believe most, most of us out there can do that. And especially if it's like, like me where they checked and they're like, well, everything physically seems to work. We just don't know why your hormones are out of whack. And it's like, well, I know now I know. I mean, it, to me, it's obvious that ah, it was an insulin problem. It was a dietary problem. <laughs> uh, so I think that now, um, but it's just, it's wonderful to see that. So that was one of the outcomes. And then uh, what I did find with the carbohydrate literacy video too, was that just a four minute video. And now we see this, right? There are so many kind of influencers and keto people and you have these podcasts and you can put out a two, three, you know, five minute video and you can teach so much information on YouTube or on a podcast. This is a longer version, but all these different things and the general public can really improve their knowledge. I think my test score went from somewhere in the 60% on the first test up to the like high 80% on the second test. And this was a short video. So if you're in a doctor's office and you're working with someone and we want to teach them kind of the basics of carbohydrate control, it looks like that may be a viable option. And how accessible is that, right? Uh, so many offices have, you know, tablets of some kind and they could say, here's a five minute video. The doctor will be in with you shortly. You could just watch this and it kind of primes them to making a, a, a change in their lifestyle. So um, I'm very excited about it, but really the, the most shocking thing to me was this this piece about the perception of what it means to reduce carbohydrate and to control for that and this piece related to disordered eating and I even included in my literature review how some there's a study on ketogenic diets used to treat as a treatment 
for binge eating disorder. And I just saw there's a conference coming up in the UK that has a speaker um, who is going to talk about treating disordered eating in general with low carbohydrate diets. So this is a field of research that's actually showing, uh, showing it as a benefit, but the perception is that it's the opposite. And so how do we, you know, hopefully we can reverse that perception, provide knowledge, but also how can we work around that so that it's viewed, you know, as another tool, like we've been saying. That's incredible. And um, with, uh, with what you said, I, I like to ask uh, most of the guests this question. Uh, it can be a contentious term. Um, so I like to just see what people think about their own uh, situation. But, um, you know, you were diagnosed at a young age with PCOS and, you know, you were kind of told you were likely to not be able to have kids. Um, you know, do you consider yourself cured of PCOS? I do. However, (laughs) I'm not supposed to say that because, um, and a lot of the listeners may know, when it comes to chronic illness or, you know, kind of on that metabolic spectrum of illness, um, the medical community has said you cannot cure them. You can only manage your symptoms. Well, I disagree because I look at it like this. I I think the amount of carbohydrate slash sugar um, slash non-whole foods were poisoning me. And once I took that poison away, the symptoms were gone. And the argument I get, you know, even at my, my university is like, well, but if you added them back, would you still, would you be sick again? And Maybe, but you know, if this were if we we're talking arsenic instead of sugar, like you would expect someone to get <laughs> sick again. Um, but also at the same time, I think there's been a lot of healing, right? We've seen my insulin level go down. We do have rev- literature that shows you can restore some of your insulin sensitivity. There's even studies showing you can, you know, improve the function of actual beta cells in the pancreas, right? So it's like this regeneration of tissues that we're able to see. So I don't think it would be an immediate situation if I suddenly was, you know, eating a standard American diet. But I'll add this piece is that I think you could give anyone a metabolic disease, a chronic disease, right? It depends on their threshold and how it's been defined. Like the the community added all of these pre-conditions. So now you can be pre-diabetic or pre-hypertensive. And we added them. And the idea, it seems kind of silly to me, is that when when you're in the pre-stage, so it's, you know, you have elevated markers or you're at risk for this condition, it can still be turned around, right? It's still preventable. But the second you trip over this imaginary line into, you know, you meet the criteria and now you're hypertensive or now you have type 2 diabetes, now it's no longer curable, right? It was, but you've now passed this line that we drew in the sand and now it isn't. And that's how it's viewed. Um, But, you know, again, I could give someone the worst possible diet and if it's, you know, bad, they might have a higher tolerance than somewhere else. It might take more. It might have to be even worse. But I guarantee you, if I have people, you know, slamming down a bunch of the, you know, glucola drinks, that's just pure glucose. And I, I could induce, right, a, a metabolic chronic disease in pretty much anyone. Um, and so we're all susceptible. It's just a matter of 
how predisposed are you, which I think also has, you know, this is why when we talk about gestational diabetes, that's one of the, the things that's so important when it comes to glucose and insulin control and sensitivity. Um, yeah, so I view myself as cured. You can say, some people will say functionally cured. And I, I bring up that I don't meet the criteria. If I went to any physician and said, run every test you have on me, I want to know if I have PCOS. And I don't tell them I used to have it. They would not diagnose me today, right? I don't meet any of the criteria. So do you call that cured? And they, yeah, so it's a bit of semantics, yes or no, but I can tell you I, today I do not have PCOS in my mind, in my view. Um, so I call that cured. <laughs> that, that's terrific. Um, you know, you've mentioned a couple resources here, but um, are there any resources that uh, you would recommend to listeners who um, want to, you know, research your approach of healing from PCOS or who want to improve their chances of fertility? Yes. So, well, when it comes to just understanding kind of the low carb spectrum of diets, my favorite online resource is going to be dietdoctor.com for sure. They have so many guides. I actually just forwarded one of my, uh, my classmates to that website because they want to produce some materials for the clinic that my university has. So I was like, well, that's great. Here's where you need to go. So there's that. Um, when it comes to just kind of understanding, um, your cycle and what goes along with that. Um, there's a great, there are a couple of great books, the fifth vital sign. And, uh, I think the other is it starts with the egg. There's also the period repair manual. So these are more like knowledge based understanding your cycle. Um, I am starting, it should be live this year, um, a fertility boot camp that goes over a lot of this in kind of those short video formats that will have its private Facebook group where I'll be doing live calls, but it's going over not only the kind of the mechanics of the menstrual cycle and what we'd like to see, um, it goes over any problems you may have. While PCOS is the most common reason for ovulatory dysfunction, it's not the only reason. So going over problems like that and then looking at, again, the spectrum of diets that may be a therapeutic tool depending on your situation and then kind of going in how to implement that and how to, to do all those things. So um, that fertility boot camp. Uh, should be live later this year, um, just because this is really my my niche. Um, there is a new book that also came out that's shorter, that's called The PCOS Plan. So I just got that one, and that's a, another one. But when it comes to, uh, it depends on what you're looking to do, right? Do you want to know more about your cycle, which is always great. I'm all for information. Or if you're just saying, you know, I want to start getting healthier and just kind of dip my toe, then usually I'm like, start with diet, just see how you feel. And then you can get into the nitty gritty, especially if you're not, you know, with the current conditions, if you can't get to your, your doctor to get a bunch of blood tests, um, that might take time, but you can start making small changes toward more of a whole food diet or changing the composition uh, right now because you're still eating, right? So you can start making those changes. So um, that's just one of the, the best websites, but there's a lot of them. And then look for podcasts. I love podcasts. I love listening to them. Um, I listen to a wide variety uh, because it's good to just hear different perspectives. And, uh, you know, I try not to keep that tunnel vision anymore. Now I realize, you know, there's a broad range of things that can work and you'll find what works best for you. But if you don't know it's there, if you're not aware that there, that it's an option, then you can't implement it. So that's, that's some of the, 
the places I would go. And then, you know, I have my, my, you know, Instagram and my Facebook group and all those things. I post kind of my little tidbits as well. And uh, those are uh, Instagram.com slash keto babies. Yes. Keto babies, (laughs) which now, now I have keto toddlers, but the idea (laughs) is that um, because again, we see a lot of these keto babies. So I really my focus is on fertility and restoring fertility. Um, whether having a child is is your main goal or not, having a regular cycle is an important sign of your overall health. Um, so there's that. I also, you know, will repost things of other people I follow. So it might give you ideas of who else to follow. Um, and then I have a, a an open Facebook group and page that people can join that's also keto babies and then when i have the boot camp that'll be a very private group for anyone who wants to sign up for that um as well and then i have you know my website is also keto babies but i mostly use instagram well that's awesome those are a lot of great resources for people um you know to learn from someone who has had so much success and had so much passion behind this um so that is uh that's a wonderful set of resources um now, I, uh, before we close here, I want to ask uh, the question that we always ask here on the You Cured What podcast. Now that you've improved your health, what's one thing you enjoy doing that you couldn't do before? Well, besides having children, which is, I mean, that was the goal, right? Um, for me, it was the goal, but for everyone, that's not for everyone. But I was very happy to have my children. But honestly, the thing I think about the most that changed my life was having flexibility to not be tied to food, like I was talking about, to not have to snack all the time, and to be able to do things like hiking, right? I could go hiking when I was, you know, in the 300 plus pounds, um, but it was a lot more challenging. And I was like, well, what am I going to eat? I got to stop and snack all the time. It was just different, right? So not having to constantly eat all day, every day um, has been the biggest change in my life. And for someone who, you know, there might be people listening, they're like, well, I just eat my three meals. Well, I'm happy for you. I was eating every two hours and it it was something I had to do and it took so much time and effort and to have this flexibility of my time back um, really just kind of branches into every aspect of my life to be able to be in grad school, to have my own, you know, the keto babies coaching that I do, um, to be developing the boot camp, to be able to spend time with my children um, and all, you know, also have my recreational activities. That wasn't something I could do before. There wasn't time because I had to always be getting food. So that for me is, is the big one. And I know some people will resonate with that where you have all of your snacks and you have your snacks in the car and you have your snacks at the desk. And then you have some in a drawer upstairs in the bed, just in case. And then they're, they're just everywhere. Um, And I don't have to worry about that anymore. Well, that is terrific. Um, thank you, Carolina, for uh, bringing so much knowledge and wisdom to the podcast today. Uh, again, for the listeners, um, you know that's Instagram.com slash Keto Babies, KetoBabies.com, Facebook group, Keto Babies. Um, you know, you, you've got to catch up with Carolina at these places. Um, but thank you so much for uh, coming on and sharing your story today, Carolina. Thank you. Thank you for listening to You Cured What? Join us again soon for another story of healing.